Welcome to the In Common Podcast. This is Hatley Post. This Insight episode comes from full episode 59 with Brent Locken. Brent is a global food lead scientist at the World Wildlife Fund. Here, Brent talks with Michael about the importance of understanding how the conversion of land to agriculturally based uses and the other major environmental impacts of large-scale agriculture are intimately related to our ability to attain animal conservation and other environmental goals, as well as differing ideas of how best to use land and the politics surrounding these issues. This is the In Common Podcast. Brent, how does, can you make this connection um, clearer for, for myself and listeners? Like, how does food connect to the welfare of animals that we care about? Well, <clears throat> you know, when we think about food production, um, I, I guess anybody living in the U.S. Or, or, or if they're living anywhere, that they've seen large farms, um, you have a notion of just how much nature has been has been converted for these areas. You know, I was, I was born in Iowa and I was born in an area which is completely devoid of large forests and marshes and everything else. They've all been drained and they've been drained for corn and soybeans and other things. And this is the same thing which is happening all over the world. Um, you know, and the leading cause right now today of whether it's loss of tropical forest, where there's like grasslands being like converted, it's for food production. It's for what, whether it's palm oil production or whether it's produce uh, soy or whether it's produced like livestock. Um, and, 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 you know, about 70% of the impacts or species impact comes, comes from the food that we actually eat. Um, so that, w- th- that is one of the main impacts. You know, food is also responsible for about 70 to 80% of all the fresh water that is used. Um, it's responsible for 25% of all the global greenhouse gas emissions that we give out. And even when you think about climate change, we think and we tend to think about transport and smokestacks and cars and airplanes and things like that. And we don't even think about food, but 25% of the global greenhouse gas emissions comes from the food that we eat and how it's actually produced. Mm. You know, so what we've really quickly started to wrap our heads around you know, are these global goals, the, the you know sustainable development goals, the Paris Climate Agreement, um, you know, goals about biodiversity. We will not be able to achieve them if we don't start taking food seriously and start to integrate um, these into some of these international goals. Um, and it's and it's finally starting to happen. Thus the UN Food System Summit next year to lift it to the international level. Okay. So we've got a story of displacement it it sounds like um does this have you engaged with the debate of land sharing versus land sparing with respect to that kind of displacement like whether or not we should have multifunctional ecosystems or whether we should just protect some areas and then really intensively use others has that been a part of the discourse so far a little bit um I think it will continue to be a part of the discourse going forward. And yeah, I don't think we've necessarily landed on an answer for this. And, you know, Mm -hmm. what we definitely know is that land is extremely, I I, I mean, it is really a vital resource and there's not much left. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we used to think years ago that we had this unlimited land and we could just do whatever we wanted with it. But really, as you, as you look forward, we have very little land left to give. Mm -hmm. No, so we're looking at a situation of, you know, we're sitting at about 7.5 billion people on the planet right now, maybe a bit more. 
by 2050, we're going to be at 10 billion people. Um, and we have to produce food for 10 billion people by 2050 on the same amount of land that we use today. Now, yeah. you know, how the heck are we going to do that? If we continue to convert forests to produce more crops, we're going to contribute to global greenhouse gas emissions. We're going to lose a lot more species. So if, 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 we're, if we're constrained or if we take those other agreements seriously, what that ultimately means is that there's no more land that we can actually use. Um, and that puts severe limitations um, uh, on what we can do going forward. Um, in addition to that, to achieve the Paris Climate Agreement, we have to figure out how to pull massive amounts of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and store it underground. Um, and there's been a lot of talk about technologies that can do this, but there's no proven technology that can actually do this at scale. The only thing that we know that can do it is just to plant things, plant trees. Trees, trees do it for free, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, but that needs land. And where is that land actually going to come from? And are we going to be able to pull some land out of production to be able to um, restore nature and sequester carbon. Um, and if we do, then where's, where's this land going to come from? And the only way that we can do that, it comes back to diets. Um, the only right. way that we can actually free up land is to shift diets. And, and, and that kind of lies at the crux of the issue. So are you referring to uh, a term I heard earlier this year, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage? Uh, it's like yep. the ECCS. I, I've heard that as the main critique of it is that, look, this is going to require like a lot of land and it relates to the issue that you just mentioned, which is, you know, scaling up, which is ultimately what we need to do to address this global problem. Yeah. Yeah. The main idea behind that is we're going to plant a lot of crops that is going to um, store carbon dioxide in like the biomass. We're then going to burn that for energy. And then as we burn that, we're going to capture the, the actual CO2 that comes out of the smokestack and we're going to bury that underground. But the amount of land that it will actually require to do that is like the size of India. I mean, it's uh, you know, huge. Um, and right now, that land actually is a, is it is it you know isn't there. Um, and achieving negative emissions is absolutely the elephant in the room that nobody seems to be talking about enough. Uh, but Paris will not be achievable unless we figure that out. Right. Um, so, Brent, what role do you think? Um politics plays on all this as an example of you know it matters deeply who owns the land um because land like most things is distributed unevenly and that relates to power um and politics i've been hearing a lot in the last i don't want at least five years about the global land grab phenomenon where you know um private actors from wealthier nations come into different countries in Africa and, and poor areas and buy up all the land. Um, so it's, you know, it's, we're in a kind of, in a way, a post-colonial era, but there's still these very inequitable processes going on. Like how, you know, as a scientist, do you, do you engage in the politics uh, of the processes that are required to accomplish your goals or, or not, or how does that work? I mean, these are definitely central issues that we need to figure out um, is what are the lock-ins that are preventing implementation mm -hmm. of action? What are the power relations that are preventing implementation of action? Um, so I think that you've raised an absolutely critical point that we need to figure out. And I, I, I don't have an answer for how we figure that out. I mean, for the 
you, you know, one of the buzzwords right now, and there are definitely a lot of buzzwords floating around, but one of them is, you know, these game-changing solutions. We need to look for these game-changing solutions. Everybody's trying to come up with what this idea is. You know, but I think that a game-changing solution would really be just figuring out how to implement what we already know, how to be able to identify the lock-ins, identify and really understand the power relations and what's preventing the implementation from actually taking place. And if we can start to crack that nut and truly understand that in a particular place, that could potentially enable the, implement, the actual implementation of what we, like the, like the knowledge that we have in our hands. Um, and, and we still haven't figured that out. So, yeah. so I mean, as a scientist, I think all of us should be engaged and um, uh, we should be working on these issues and we, and, and we should take them seriously, you know? And I think that moving forward, the role of scientists needs to absolutely change. You know, we, we can't sit in our ivory towers and, and, and just, you know, think, or, you know, maybe some can, but I think for, you know, if we, if we do want to have a chance of achieving the ambitious agendas that we've set out to achieve, then we're going to have to come out of that ivory tower sometimes and start to engage in the politics. Thanks for tuning in. The In Common Podcast is a partner project of the International Association for the Study of the Commons and the International Journal of the Commons. To explore more episodes of the podcast, as well as our blog, visit our website at www.incommonpodcast.org. Here you will also find a list of the members of our recently expanded team, as well as a link to our Patreon page, where you can make a small donation to help us cover our operating costs. You can also follow us on Twitter at InCommonPod. Thanks again.